0: Tonight I'm really excited that we have the opportunity to study one of the most powerful prophecies in the Bible. And you ask, why is it the most powerful? And it's because it's my favorite. And so i am got to share my favorite with you tonight. And we're going to be learning some amazing things through Scripture. And tonight we're going to be looking at Revelation's time of the end. You know, what's amazing is many people in the world think that being a Christian, you have to be ignorant. In other words, you have to be ignoring the, the signs that obviously Jesus wasn't real and all of these different things. But tonight what we're going to be looking at is to see that believing in Jesus is the most logical conclusion that anyone can come to. Did you know that in the Bible there's over 300 prophecies dealing with Jesus, talking about him being the Messiah and different specifics of where he would come from and things he would do. And what's interesting to note is that they say the probability of one man fulfilling just 10 of those prophecies, right, there's 300, and if one man were to fill 10 of those things, they say it's the probability of one in 10 trillion. So if there's a man who can fulfill 300 of these things, we just call him the Messiah. And that's who we see that Jesus is. Now tonight we're going to be looking at one of the most specific prophecies detailing the life of Jesus and it also deals with the judgment and the time of the end and specifically found in Daniel chapter 9 and talked about in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14. And so we're going to be looking at this together and before we begin, why don't we go ahead and bow our heads for prayer together. Father in heaven, what a privilege it is to be back here on a wonderful Thursday evening to be able to study the Bible together. And Father, we thank You for the privilege of Your Word and the blessing of knowing Jesus. Lord, each one of us are here because You've been so faithful to us and You're drawing us to You. Lord, You tell us that if we would understand the truth, that the truth would set us free. And that's why we're here this evening. To know more about Jesus. To to experience Your goodness in a more powerful way. And Father, we need Your Spirit to guide our mind, to guide our thoughts, and to draw us closer to You. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, just like every other night of this series, we're going to be looking at the Bible, right? We don't need someone else's opinion about what Jesus is or what the end of the world is or what is important in society, but we need to know what Jesus says is important, right? And tonight we're going to be looking at one of the most powerful passages in all of Scripture that's dealing with centering around who Jesus is and predicting the time that He would be here on this earth. Now, We noticed many times already that in the book of Revelation, that worship is one of the major themes, right? And we've already looked at that multiple times. We saw in night number three that Satan is the one who wanted worship because he wanted to take that away from God and he wanted to be like God. We saw that in Ezekiel chapter 28. And we see that Revelation chapter 13 tells us about someone who would come and set up a system that would pull worship away from the true God. Now I'm thankful that the Bible doesn't stop there with just bad news about someone pulling away worship from the true God, but Revelation chapter 14 actually tells us that there's going to be a group of people who are following Jesus in the last days. You see, Satan's going to be doing everything he can to pull people away, but God is going to have people who are faithful to him, drawing closer to him, seeing the goodness of the Lord. Now we've already started looking at this passage together and this is one of the central messages in the book of Revelation and we're going to look at a different aspect tonight than what we've looked at before and this is found in Revelation chapter 14 in verse 6. Now Revelation chapter 14 verse 6, notice what it says. It says, then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Now we've looked at this multiple times and some of you almost have it memorized and I'm thankful for that. But what we see is one of the last messages that God gives is depicted as an angel flying through the midst of heaven, right? We know that this isn't just an angel flying overhead, but an angel symbolizes a messenger. That's what the word means. A messenger coming in the midst of heaven. In other words, it's very visible for everyone to see. And this messenger is proclaiming the everlasting gospel to the entire world. Now this is what Revelation talks about before Jesus comes back, there will be this great revealing of the gospel message. Now this is very similar to what we've seen Jesus talking about. Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14 that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached unto all the world as a witness to all nations, and then what does it say would happen next? And then the end would come. You see, Revelation chapter 14 is telling us about this gospel message that's going out, and Revelation 14 gives us many more details of what that gospel message contains. We've already looked at some of those together, but we're going to be looking at another aspect tonight of what is this message concerning that Jesus is trying to urge people to understand before He comes back. Notice what verse 7 says. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7, it says... Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come. And it continues on and it says, And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. We've already looked at this last couple nights that God is calling people back to the true worship of the Creator, and He's pleading for people to understand that He's the one who made everything. Right? We live in a world of skepticism where it seems like they wonder where our origins are from, and God is saying, I'm the one who created you, and I'm the one who deserves worship as well. Remember this. Now notice what He continues on to say. The second angel comes and it says, then another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city and it continues on and you can read that passage and we'll actually be looking more detailed at this passage of scripture as we continue on in the seminar but we already looked at night number two that historic Babylon had fallen, right remember that when we looked at the statue head of gold chest and arms of silver thighs of brass legs of iron feet of iron and clay and we saw that who was the head of gold well, it was King Nebuchadnezzar, or the kingdom of Babylon, and that kingdom came and passed away just as God predicted. But notice in Revelation that it says that there's another Babylon that would fall, and we realize that the symbols in Revelation are much more concerned about the spiritual conditions instead of the physical kingdoms. In other words, it's not just talking about physical Babylon that will be fallen, but that there's a spiritual system called Babylon which will also fall in the last days, and we'll be looking at that in the weeks to come. But notice that the message continues on. He says if anyone worships the beast and his image, that the same shall receive the mark of the beast, right? And it talks about that as we continue through in Revelation chapter 14, that there's this issue of worship. The first angel calls us to worship God. The, second, the, the third angel continues on and tells us that we need to be worshiping God because if we're not worshiping God, who are we going to be worshiping? The beast. Well, I can tell you the best way to to prevent receiving the mark of the beast is to follow our Bible. Amen? Do you think if we're following our Bibles and we love Jesus, that we will be receiving the mark of the beast? Absolutely not. The Lord is going to protect us from those things, and we'll look at that more of what those signs mean and symbols are. But we're just getting an overview of the message that God gives in Revelation 14, and then we're going to go into the detailed message for this evening. Now notice what it continues. God doesn't tell us all of these things just to scare us, to, to get us all riled up about the things that are happening in the last days. But the reason why God gives these messages in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6-11 through 11, is because God is preparing a people who will be ready to meet Him, right? God wants people to realize that there's dangers ahead that are coming, but He wants us to also know that He has an ideal for each one of us. Now many people look at the book of Revelation and say that's just scary. Why would God use such scary symbols to, to warn us in these last days? I want to ask you a question. If you saw your son or daughter running out into the street would you and you saw a truck coming about to hit them, would you just calmly tell them to please step out of the street? No, you might use a little bit of loud voice to communicate that there's something dangerous coming that you want to prevent the tragedy from taking place, right? And this is what we see in Revelation, that God is trying to prevent His people from being swept away by the deceptions of Satan. And notice how He depicts His people in the last days. Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, it says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith." We were having the discussion in the back before the meeting started. What does it mean to be a saint? You know, does God have any saints today? Is it holy people? Well, really, if you want to be a saint today, you don't just need to be enlisted by a church as a saint, but Jesus tells us this is what comprises a saint. His people are those who are keeping his commandments and who have the faith of Jesus. And by the grace of God, that's what each one of us want, right? Living holy lives according by faith in Jesus and what He can do in us so that we can be walking with Him in these last days. Now, we're going to shift gears. Now that we've done this survey, we're going to go back in and zoom in on verse 7 and try to understand how it relates to the message of Daniel chapter 7. Notice what this says. God in the last days not only tells people to worship Him in respect to His creatorship, But God also says this. He says, fear God and give glory to Him. And what is the reason that He gives why we should fear God and give glory to Him? What does He say? For the hour of His judgment, what? Has come. Now what's interesting is many of us know that God is a God who is a God of love, right? God is love. That's what 1 John 4, verse 8 tells us that God is a loving God, that He loves His people, and so why is it that we would fear a loving God? Well, we realize that even though God is our friend, that God is one who died for us and that He loves us so much, that we still need to have a respect for God that draws us closer to Him, that we honor Him with our lives. You know, what's interesting, I feel like in a large degree, the world today has forgotten what it means to respect. Would you agree with that? I think young people have forgotten what it means to respect elderly people. Children have forgotten what it means to respect their parents. And to a large degree, God knowing that that would be happening, He knew that there would be Christians who forget what it means to respect their Heavenly Father. And that's why God in these last days, He's calling us to fear God and give glory to Him. Notice what Solomon says, the wisest man in Proverbs chapter 16. What does it mean to fear God? This is what he says. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 6. In mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity. How many of you are thankful for that? The Lord forgives us, amen? But notice what it continues on to say. And by the fear of the Lord, one does what? Departs from evil. You see, as God is looking at His last day people, He's looking at a people who are getting ready to come on the brink of eternity that Satan is throwing out every deception he can to entangle them, to keep them from entering into the realms of glory. And God is saying, if you want to be my people, this is the time where you need to turn away from evil, right? Fear God, which means by that, by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. If we've ever wondered when is the time that we should get our life right with God... It was yesterday, right? But if we didn't do it yesterday, by the grace of God, we can do it today. Lord, I want to be right with you. I want to turn away from evil. This is what this message is calling for. And why is it calling us to turn away from evil? Why is it calling for us to fear God? Well, the verse tells us that the reason why this is so imperative for us today is because a judgment is coming. Now, there's a lot of discussion in the Christian world about what the judgment of God is. What does it mean? What what are the judgments taking place? And this evening, what we're going to do is realize what it is that the Bible says about the judgment. We're going to understand by the grace of God through Scripture when the judgment takes place, where it takes place, and who's involved in the judgment. And I want to tell you that we're going to find that there's good news in the judgment. How many of you are thankful for that? It's a blessing when you have a judge who's also your attorney. And this is what we realize, that Jesus is the one standing beside His people and also there as the judge before His people. And God is going to give us good news about the judgment tonight. But why don't we go ahead and take a look at is this theme of the judgment important in other places than just Revelation chapter 14. Notice Revelation chapter 20 verse 12. John is speaking and he says, And I saw the dead small and great standing before God and the books were open and another book was open which is the book of life and the dead were judged according to what their works by the things which were written in the books now here's something that i'm really thankful about the judgment of God is that there's no misinformation in the judgment how many of you have ever heard those horror stories about the people who were put on death row and ended up being killed and then they found out they were innocent years later? Well, I'm thankful to know that the Lord Jesus is not going to make a bad decision, that God is the most fair judge that we can ever see, and that there's, it's going to be clear before everyone that God is making the right choice. Now, have you ever stopped and thought, why in the world do we need a judgment? If God is an all-knowing God, why does he need to sit down and have a judgment? Is it for the sake of Him being informed? Or do you think it could be for the sake of other people being informed that God is truly making the best decisions? I mean, think about it. Does God already know who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost? Does God know the choices that were... He knows the end from the beginning. But we realize that through the judgment, we're going to look at these scenes in Daniel right here, that in the judgment, it's not just God involved, but we have the onlooking universe realizing that the judgments of God are fair. Notice what Daniel says in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. He says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. Now, who is this speaking of? Well, it's obviously God, right? The Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, well, and his His hair was or the, the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame and its wheels a burning fire. Now this is very similar to the imagery of Revelation chapter 1 that we see of the picture of Jesus, right? Remember looking at that? Verses 13 through 20? Now notice it continues on. And a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him, and a thousand thousands ministered to him, and ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. The courts was seated, and the book. Or what? Open. You see, God is not entering into the judgment by himself. So we see that in the judgment, that God is not alone, right? We see that God is there, and how many angels are surrounding him? What does it say? A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him, right? There's this great multitude of the heavenly hosts surrounding the judgment scene. Now, as God is opening the books, and as we see that God is moving forward in judgment, it's very clear to all of those involved that what God is bringing to the judgment is righteous, fair, and true. You see, God is not a God who wants misinformation, but God is the God who's the most fair from creation. Now, we notice that this is a scene, where is the judgment taking place? It's obviously not taking place on this earth but it's taking place in heaven and we're going to continue to see that that is the theme of Scripture. Now notice what Paul says about the judgment here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. It says, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, how many of you have ever read that and were terrified? You know, I think the Lord gives that. to He, he afflicts the comforted and comforts the afflicted. Have you ever heard that term before? You know, God, for those who aren't concerned about the judgment, He brings the reality to pass that, hey, look, there's going to be a time where the things that are both good and evil are going to be brought to view. But then for those who are terrified, Jesus says, I want to let you know that for those who accept me, I'm going to be standing right there next to him, right? But notice, it continues on. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according uh, according to that he hath done whether it be good or bad. Now notice, this is a continual theme throughout Scripture, and notice what Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 9 says. It says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all of these, God will do what? Bring into judgment. Now, it continues on the same theme in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. And it says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. In other words, when he sums up his life, the wisest man Solomon, he says, this is the conclusion of everything there is to know about life. He says, fear God. Now, where did we hear fear God already? Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, right? Fear God and do what? Keep his commandments. For this is man's all. Now we realize that the commandments, we realize that that was a boundary that God had set for our own safety and happiness, right? And as God is calling us to fear Him, to respect Him, to turn from evil, He also calls us to walk in righteousness, which is what His commandments are. And then it continues on and it says, For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now we've looked a little bit about what the judgment is and what Scripture has to say and a quick survey about this judgment. But the next question we want to look at is when will the judgment take place? Now there's a bunch of different theories that people have as to when the judgment will take place according to the Bible. But we notice that God was very specific and telling us when the judgment would take place. Notice let's set a couple of parameters as we get ready to look at the specifics of when God's judgment will take place. Acts chapter 17 verse 31. It says, "He has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness." Now Acts the author Luke is writing and obviously during the apostles' times he says there's coming a day, right? In other words, is the judgment before the time of the apostles or after? Well, it's obviously after, right? Because He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. Notice what it continues on. Revelation chapter 14, when John is writing in Revelation, specifically talking about the time when the message of the three angels would be being preached, notice the language that he uses. It says that the hour of His judgment, what? Has come. In other words, there will be a time... In earth's history, where men and women will be able to say the hour of God's judgment has come. Now the question is, when is that specifically? And does the Bible give us any more information on it? Notice this one. Revelation chapter 22 in verse 12. We're just setting the parameters here. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is what? With me to give to everyone according to his work. Now, what is this verse talking about? Obviously, it's talking about the second coming of Jesus, right? That Jesus is coming quickly, and that his reward is with him. I want to ask you a question. Do you give someone their reward before or after their judgment takes place? After, right? There has to be a decision, and then comes the reward. So we notice here through Scripture that from the eyes of the apostles, the judgment was future, From the eyes of those living in the time of the three angels' message, it was something that had taken place. And from the eyes of those at the second coming, the judgment will have happened already, because at the second coming, Jesus will be giving the reward. Now, this is helpful, but we want to say, is there anything else that the Bible gives us to help us to understand the topic of the judgment? Now, many of you have been here multiple nights, and you've heard this said, that Revelation has a twin brother, right? and the twin brother's name is Daniel. And Daniel and Revelation go side by side as prophetic keys to help us to understand each other, to know what it is that God is saying about a given topic. What Revelation says, Daniel enlarges. What, what Daniel says, Revelation enlarges. And we see them working as hand in glove. And this evening, we're going to realize that one of the specific visions given in Daniel chapter 8 and 9 deal with the timing of the judgment now why don't we continue on and look as we get started in this prophecy Daniel chapter 8 verse 14 Daniel chapter 8 verse 14 Daniel is there and he hears a conversation going on in heaven and he hears two angels speaking to one another and you can read about that in Daniel chapter 8 verse 13 but Daniel chapter 8 verse 14 is where we want to start the focal point of our study tonight and looking at the vision that Daniel had Daniel chapter 8 verse 14. He says, and he said unto me, for 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, some of you were thinking, I thought this verse was actually going to help us with our information, and now it just seems to be more confusing than where we were before. Now, notice that Daniel is writing to a group of people who would know very clearly what Daniel was talking about when he said, for unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now we hear this term and we think then shall the sanctuary be cleansed, does that just mean the janitor hasn't come in yet and they need to do their vacuuming? No, we realize that the sanctuary being cleansed has great implications for those who understand the sanctuary service. So tonight, once again, we're going to take a step back and try to understand what did the cleansing of the sanctuary actually mean? Is it relevant to the topic of the judgment and is it helpful to our understanding? of when this would take place. When did the cleansing of the sanctuary mean? Now, notice we've already looked at this a couple times, but Exodus chapter 25 verse 8, all the way back in the time of the Israelites when they're still wandering in the 40-year desolation in the wilderness, notice what it says. God is wanting to spend time with his people, and he says, let them make me a sanctuary that I might do what? Dwell among them. Once again, we see that God is a personal God. Right at creation, God wanted to be right there with His people. Giving us the gift of the Sabbath, God wanted to spend time with His people. In the institution of the sanctuary, God wanted to be near to His people. And understanding this sanctuary and the cleansing that took place with this sanctuary will help us to understand the key to understanding Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14. Now, in the sanctuary, many of us are familiar with some of the basic services that have taken place in the sanctuary of the Israelite system. Now, for those of you who have missed a couple nights, we'll do a quick recap, but we've done this recap a couple times to help us understand what was taking place in the sanctuary service. Now, we realize that the sanctuary was a place where people would come if they had sinned against God to be made right in His favor, right? And it was told, and we can read it as Genesis, or in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, the system that God had set up. If you or I sinned, what did we need to do? We needed to take a lamb, and we needed to lead it to the sanctuary. And as we got to the sanctuary, we would be met by some of these gentlemen. Now, the priests would be there, and they would help us go through the service. But who was it who was slitting the throat of that lamb for their sin? Well, it was me, or it was you, or it was the sinner, whoever had transgressed the law of God. And we realized that when they were brought to the point where they had sinned, they come, they bring this lamb, lamb, and as a symbol of the transference of their sin, they would put their hands on the head of this lamb. And as they put their hands on the head of this lamb, the sin was symbolically transferred from the sinner to the lamb. Now now follow with this. This isn't just a, a bunch of fluff, but it actually has some significance for us tonight. So the sin was now with the lamb, and the lamb's life was taken. And as the lamb's life was taken, it was then put on the altar, and burnt there. Now, we know this as the burnt altar sacrifice. Now, what's interesting to note is that the priest would take some of the blood from the lamb. Now, what's interesting to understand about the sacrificial system is that we're told without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. In other words, that's why there had to be a lamb dying, right? It was a symbol of Jesus, the lamb of God, who shed his blood on our behalf. Now, it was the, the life was in the blood, and that's what was so significant about this. And as the, the priest would go through with the sacrifice, he would pick up the blood of the lamb in a little bowl like that one there, and he would take it into the sanctuary, and he would put some of the blood on the horns of the altar and on the veil that separated the holy place and the most holy place. Now, notice the process that happened here. The sin went from the, the sinner to the lamb, which symbolically was in the blood, and then from the blood into where? The sanctuary. Now the question was, is what would happen to cleanse the sanctuary from the sin or the blood that was there, which is representative of the sins of the people? Did the sanctuary just stay like that, filled with the sin, and it was all embodied there? Notice what took place. Every day we had, or just about every day, there would be these sacrifices of the Lamb on behalf of those who had sinned. But once a year, there was something very special and different that took place. Every year, it's told to us on the 10th day of the 7th month, Leviticus chapter 16 talks about this, that there was a service called the Day of Atonement. How of you have you ever heard that term before, the Day of Atonement? And what does it mean, the day of atonement, the day of at one meant, In other words, they were brought into unity with God again. What is it that separates us from God? Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 tells us that it's our sin that separates us from God, right? And as these people, their sin had gone symbolically to the sanctuary. Sure, the Lamb had cleansed them from their sin, but what was going to be happening with the sin problem? Well, there was going to have to be a cleansing that takes place. Now, when you read Leviticus chapter 16, you realize that the symbol or the service that would happen is that there would be two goats that were chosen. One goat would be, bef- would be for the Lord, and one would be the scapegoat, which they would call the goat of Azazel, which was known as Lucifer's goat. In other words, who's responsible for sin ultimately, God or Satan? Satan is, right? And this service would help instill that in the minds of God's people. But as the people would come, they would sacrifice the Lord's goat on behalf of the sins of everyone. And then the sanctuary would be cleansed. The high priest would take the blood of that goat, and he would go before the mercy seat. And this is what we find in the uh, most holy place of the tabernacle, where you could only go once a year if you were the high priest. And he was there standing before the presence of God, pleading on behalf of the people that God would forgive the sins of all of the people that have been transgressed that year. Now what's very interesting to note about this is we see the symbology of of Leviticus chapter 16 that the day of atonement was the day of judgment for the people of Israel. If you were a person in Israel, you were told that during the day, the 10th day of the 7th month, that you were to be afflicting your soul. In other words, it was a time of soul searching. You were saying, am I right with God? Is there anything between me and God? Because this was the time where if there was anything standing between you and God, that this was the time to take care of it. Now, the Day of Atonement or the Day of Judgment is the the same idea of what we find in in the cleansing of the sanctuary language. In other words, there's three phrases that can be used interchangeably. The Day of Judgment, Day of Atonement, and the cleansing of the sanctuary. Now, we might be saying, what does this have to do with our study about the judgment? Well, notice that Daniel told us in Daniel chapter 8 that there was going to be a time where the cleansing of the sanctuary would happen. And it was 2,300 days until that cleansing would take place. And we're going to look at tonight, what is that prophecy specifically talking about, and what does that help us to understand about God's judgment on this earth? Now we see that the, the time of judgment in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 16, on the Day of Atonement, is the same thing that takes place in heaven on the Judgment Day, right? Would we say that? Because we see that the sanctuary service was just symbolic of what was taking place in the sanctuaries of heaven. And we'll continue looking at that a little more tonight. And as we see that the cleansing of the sanctuary in the Old Testament was truly the symbol of the final work of judgment prior to Christ's second coming. Now some of you might be saying, I don't don't understand why is there such a close connection between the sanctuary of the Old Testament and what's going on in heaven today. Notice what Hebrews says in talking about this. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, which is filled with sanctuary language, we get some interesting details about what was taking place. It says, For Christ has not entered a holy place made with hands, which are what? Which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now you might be saying, what does this have to do with the study that we're looking at? Well, I want to ask you, which holy place was made with hands? In other words, by human intervention. Was it the one in heaven or was it the one on earth? The one on earth, right? You see, it was clearly that man was called by God after following the blueprint of the pattern given by God to build the sanctuary on earth. But Jesus says, hey, I want to tell you something, that the sanctuary of the new covenant is not surrounding the sanctuary on this earth, but it's it's surrounding the one that's not made with human hands and that's the one that's a copy. In other words, these were just copies, the ones on this earth, of the true sanctuary that's in heaven. You see, God gave us the sanctuary on this earth to give us a clearer understanding of his dealings with humanity, and an understanding of how God dealt with humanity throughout time. We're able to get a clearer picture of how God is dealing with the sin problem today in heaven as well. Now, it continues on to tell us and Hebrews, using more sanctuary language, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the son of who? God, let us hold fast our confession. Now, what's interesting about this idea of the sanctuary service, that there was always someone mediating or going between you and God. So as you were sacrificing the lamb, there was a priest that was helping you. As your sins were being cleansed from the sanctuary, there was the high priest who was doing it. And Jesus said all of that was pointing to which person? It was himself. It was Jesus who embodied the sanctuary service and shows us that he's the only one that can mediate between us and God, right? The Bible tells us that there's one mediator between God and man, and that's the man who? Jesus Christ. And we see that Jesus is the one before the throne of God pleading our behalf. Now as we get this imagery in mind, we should pause for a moment just to set it in place what we've studied. We see that God is the Lamb of God, or Jesus is the Lamb of God, which was sacrificed on our behalf for sin. But as he was sacrificed, the blood of the Lamb was symbolically placed in the sanctuary. And the question comes, when is the sanctuary going to be cleansed? When is sin going to be made right? When is the judgment going to take place? And there's only one person who can deal in the judgment, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the high priest, and the question is, when is this going to be taking place, and when is the sanctuary going to be cleansed? Now, notice this is exactly what Daniel is talking about as we come to Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14. He says, days, then." shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, for those of you who have fallen asleep, this is a great time to wake up because this is the only interesting time. The rest was just helping us to understand to get to this point so we can actually see the beauty of this, right? Have you ever noticed sometimes we need to go to school and we learn a bunch of boring stuff just to get us to the highlights? Well, this is the highlight of the message. So this is where we want to perk up. Notice what it said. Understanding what we understand about the cleansing of the sanctuary. Let's read this a little bit differently now. And he said unto me for under 2,300 days, then shall the judgment take place, right? Or then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. It's synonymous. Jesus is telling Daniel way back in the 6th century B.C. that there's a judgment that's coming on the earth. Now, if you've read Daniel chapter 8, you realize that this was quite a confusing thing to Daniel. Actually, it tells, tells us that he has no clue what he's talking about. He gets sick. He fasts. And he, he has this terrible experience of what in the world is God talking about with the sanctuary being cleansed in 2,300 year or 2,300 days? What is he talking about? Well, notice as we go through this, what is it that God is meaning by 2,300 days? How many of you have ever done the math of how many days are in a year? How many, how many days are in a year? Well, 365, right? Now, if you're a Jew and you're in the, the, under their system, there was 30 days in a month, there wasn't you know, 30, 31, and then 28 in February. But they had 360 days in a year. Now, if you're looking at this, and it says that there's going to be a cleansing taking place, in 2,300 days, I'm sure Daniel got out his little scroll and started calculating away, that's 6.34 years. Well, then what is this happening? I I, I don't get what's going on. Is this all going to wrap up this quick? Well, I want to ask you a question. Is the judgment... Had the judgment taken place 6.34 years after Daniel, could it have been after the apostles and before the second coming? No. So what is it that Daniel is talking about? What is this vision that God has given? Well, I want to ask you a question. Here's some things that we'll see that help set the parameter for understanding this vision again before we get into it. Notice what God says to Daniel. Daniel chapter 8, verse 16 and 17. Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Now, this is what happens after Daniel faints and he doesn't understand it. God tells Gabriel, make this man, poor Daniel, understand the vision, right? I can't see him suffering like this. So it continues on, and it says, So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the what? Time of the end. Well, is 6.34 years the time of the end? Well, no. I mean, we haven't, even, we're, we haven't even gotten to the end of time, right? But we realize that God is talking that this vision is referring to a much later date, and it's not really going to concern Daniel all that much, right? Understand that this vision is referring to the time of the end. Now, we're going to set some of these clear landmarks to help us to understand this vision. Number one is that the vision is talking about things that would take place at the end of time. Number two, we see that this vision is dealing not with the physical earthly sanctuary, but the what? The heavenly sanctuary. And also number three, we're going to realize that the 2300 day period is a symbolic period, not a literal day period. Now, don't worry, we're not going to get all loose with this and just start making up our own times to get to get fancy. And let me emphasize something here. We're not talking about the coming of Jesus, right? Jesus doesn't tell us that we know the day or the hour when he comes, right? He tells us that we don't. We're talking about the judgment beginning, not when Jesus is coming back, okay? Let's just get that clear so we don't think that we're trying to predict when Jesus is coming. But notice that it's going to concern the time of the end, the heavenly sanctuary, and that it's going to be a symbolic time period. Now you say, how do you know that it's going to be a symbolic time period? Well, what's interesting in prophecy is that when there's symbolic language, things are to be understood symbolically. Would you agree? In other words, let me give you an example. Revelation chapter 14. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, and we're just going to look at how do we understand prophecy. This is just a quick little understanding of this. Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, the last book, and notice what John says here. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1, and if I'm sorry to let you know this one is not on the screen, so we'll need to be in our Bibles for it. John here, notice what he says that he sees in vision. He says, then I look, and behold, a lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their forehead. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of a loud thunder. And I heard the voice of the sound of harpers harping on their harps, And they sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Now notice what it says here. As it continues on, it says these are the ones who have not been defiled with women for they are virgins. But notice this. These are the ones who will follow the lamb wherever he goes. Now, I want to ask you a question about how we understand this passage. When John is telling us in the last days, he sees a group of people, and there's a lamb standing up on the mountain, and around that lamb, there's 144,000 people, and they all have the name of the Father written on their foreheads, and they're all virgins, so they couldn't have been married, And there's also this experience where wherever the lamb moves, this whole group of 144,000 is shifting around. Let me ask you a question. Is that literal language or is that symbolic language? Is God telling us that in the last days there's going to be 144,000 shepherds trying to take care of one sheep? No, that's not what's taking place. Jesus is the lamb of God, right? And the people are symbolically following him wherever he goes. So now when we notice any time we come into into prophecy that uses symbolic language, we are to interpret it symbolically. Now, we don't just pick and choose whatever we want to interpret it as, right? Because then we can come up with a bunch of different ideas, and none of them would be correct, but we want to allow the Bible to interpret itself. Notice what happens. In prophecy, there's a key that we find in several places that help us to understand how it is that we are to interpret this 2300-day period. Notice what Ezekiel 4.6 says. I have appointed thee each day for a year. Now, God had given a prophecy to Ezekiel, and each day that Ezekiel was fulfilling that prophecy, he said God was saying that was symbolic of one year in literal time. Well, that's interesting. Is that the only time it happens? No, Numbers 14.34, that God had said that each, liter- that each prophetic day would equal one literal year. Now, this is what we're looking at here. In Bible prophecy, one prophetic day equals one literal year. Now, this is more of what we were just talking about when we're, this is how we know. When we look at the lion with eagle's wings, is this what really what God is saying is going to be happening in the last days, that there's going to be these crazy amalgamated beasts wandering around? No, it's symbolic language, and we're to understand it symbolically. Right When we see the white horse with riders on them all throughout the book of Revelation, does that mean we're just going to see a bunch of people on horseback on white horses and then we know that that's Revelation being fulfilled? No, it's prophetic and to be understood prophetically. In the same way, as we come to the 2300 days, we must understand that God is giving us symbolic language to help us to understand a literal event. Now, the 2,300 days, if we understand that a day in Bible prophecy equals a literal year, notice what we come up with. Not 6.34 day or years of Daniel's time, but we actually come up with 2,300 years of history. Now, this makes this one one of the longest and most specific time prophecies in all of the Bible. And what we're going to realize is that God gives such specific detail that we know that we're not just guessing at it, but that Jesus himself was helping us to understand it. Notice this prophecy continues. Daniel chapter 8, God gives Daniel this understanding that under 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. God sends Gabriel because Daniel doesn't understand it. Now, remember in your Bibles, it wasn't written with chapter divisions, right? You knew that. When Daniel was writing, he didn't get done with chapter 8 and say, okay, on to chapter 9. No, we put those in there to help us be able to locate verses easily. And so right after this time where Gabriel comes, he tries he, he's told to go help him. Daniel is seen praying to God. This is Daniel chapter 9 and verse 1, and you can read through that. And at the end of Daniel's prayer, Gabriel comes to give the interpretation to what the 2300 days means. And notice what he says. As God comes to this, He gives the interpretation, and Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, says 70 weeks are determined for your people. Now, you might be thinking, what does 70 weeks have to do with 2,300 days? The word determined here means cut off from. In other words, as you're looking at the 2,300 days of history, 70 of those prophetic weeks are specifically for your people, Daniel. Now, I want to ask you a question. Who are Daniel's people? Well, the Jews, right? Daniel's city is Jerusalem, and Daniel's people are the Jews. And so God is telling him, hey, there's going to be 70 weeks that are specifically for the Jewish people out of this 2300-day prophecy. Now, we're going to get some charts up here so you don't have to try to memorize this. And we notice that when God is talking about this, he says that those 70 weeks that are cut off or determined for your people is that the 70 weeks apply to the Jewish nation specifically. And we're going to see how this plays out in history and Bible prophecy. So if we have Daniel being told this, that 70 weeks are determined for his people, and if each day equals a year, how many days are in a week? Seven, right? Last time I checked, there was seven days in a week. And so we have 70 weeks times seven days comes up with how many years? 490. Pull out your calculator, check my math, make sure I'm not off. And we realize that 490 years of this 2,300-day prophecy were determined or cut off for the Jewish people. Now the question is, when do these 2,300 years begin And when do they end, right? If you know that there's 2,300 years and you just know that you have 490 of them, how does that really help you? So when do they begin and when do they end? Notice he continues on. Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, right after that verse, notice what Gabriel says to him. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth uh, of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and the streets shall be built again, and the walls even in troublesome times. Now, this is interesting, that Daniel then breaks up the prophecy even further, right? Gabriel as he's telling him, that not only is there going to be 70 weeks determined for your people, but there's going to be seven weeks and 62, and then there's going to be something else that takes place in more detail in that final seven-year period. Notice what happens. And he says that this would start from the decree to restore Jerusalem until the anointing of the Messiah, that there would be 69 prophetic weeks or 483 years. Now, it's going to be really helpful for you as we start to pull up some of these slides that have an overall timeline to give you a big mental picture, and it's coming very soon, so just bear with it one second. This next one says, when is it that there was a command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem? Now, we all know the story of Daniel, right? Daniel was found in Babylon as a captive because he was taken a slave as King Nebuchadnezzar took over Israel. And as he was there, they were delivered from captivity, and after a while, we can read about in the book of Ezra that they were released from captivity, and there was a time where God gave them a decree through King Artaxerxes to go back to restore and to rebuild. And according to Ezra chapter 7, verse 13 the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem was issued in 457 B.C. Now, we know that the start date of this vision was told that from the time that they gave the decree to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem, that's when the 2300 years would stop. And if that started in 457 B.C., then what would be happening 69 weeks later, 483 years later? Well, the Bible says that the Messiah the prince would come, right? Now, what's very interesting to notice is that God pinpoints with such exact measures the exact order that Jesus would live his life. Now, do you guys know what the word Messiah means? Messiah. Christ with us. That's Emmanuel. Very close. So, Messiah means more specifically, the anointed one, right? We, we know that. Christ and Messiah are the same words, one's in Hebrew, one's in Greek, and it means the anointed one. So when we're reading Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, and it tells us that from the going forth of the command to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem to the Messiah, the prince, in other words, there would be this anointing of the prince, there would be 483 years. Notice that with exact measures, this is what happened. Now, I want to ask you a question. When was Jesus anointed? What does it mean to be anointed? You know, when someone gets anointed when they're sick, we put oil on their forehead, right? Isn't that what James tells us to do? And that's a symbol of the Holy Spirit anointing that person. Well, when was Jesus anointed with the Holy Spirit? Notice what the Bible tells us. Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. When all of the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was what? Was baptized and while he prayed, the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit did what? It descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Now, does this sound like Jesus getting anointed by the Holy Spirit? Well, I would say that this is more of a specific anointing than any oil could be put on the head, right? The Holy Spirit himself is descending upon Jesus, anointing him. Now, according to to the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, this would be happening at the year 27 A.D. In other words, Jesus would be baptized 27 A.D. Is this really what took place? Well, notice this. Luke chapter 3, just a few verses before what we just read about Jesus' baptism, notice what it says. It gives us a historic marker as to when to which this actually took place. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee. Now, that's enough information where we can go back into the history books and say, when did those things take place? Well, for those of you who like history, anyone can go back and look that in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar was none other than A.D. 27. Now, if this prophecy were to end right here, I would think this is amazing. God specifically pinpointed, here's a man standing back in 600 B.C., and God says in in uh, 457, there's going to be a decree that comes forth to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And did that happen? It did to the exact date. And then God says, 483 years later, there's going to be Jesus being anointed by the Holy Spirit. And did that happen? Exactly on point. But notice that the vision doesn't stop there. It's interesting the language that the gospel writers use and even Paul as he's writing Galatians talking about Jesus and it says and but when the fullness of time had come God did what? Sent forth his son. Have you ever wondered if God was just sitting up there guessing when he should send Jesus? No, it was a very calculated action. He knew exactly when Jesus was coming. He knew exactly when Jesus was going to be baptized. And even so much so that Jesus says these words himself. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In other words, Jesus was a living fulfillment of prophecy and he knew it. Jesus was trying to help the people of that time know exactly when the Messiah was coming so they couldn't miss it. And without fail, we see that the first part of this prophecy was fulfilled already. Now, going back to Daniel chapter 9... Daniel chapter 9 tells us that in the midst of the week, something would happen, not just that the Messiah would be anointed, but that there would be something else taking place that would give us an understanding of what else would be coming in this prophecy. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25, notice what it says. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25, Daniel says this, He says, know therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince should be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now we translated that as 483 years. Now after that, it says that the streets shall be built again and the walls in troublous times. And we saw that taking place in the time of Ezra. But notice verse 26. And it says, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off but not for himself. And the people, and and, and notice what it says in the next part, and the people and the prince who is to come and shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war of the desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the midst of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. In other words, God has given us these 69 weeks. And he's zooming in on these, this last week, the last seven years of the 70 weeks that's given for the Jews. Now, I know this is kind of confusing. We'll get the chart up here. And God says after the Messiah is anointed, that in the midst of the next week, what's, what's half of seven? Three and a half, right? So it's three and a half years later that the Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself, and he would cause sacrifice and offerings to cease. What was that talking about? Well, none other than the crucifixion, right? How long was Jesus' ministry? Well, three and a half years from the time he was baptized until the time he was crucified. And we see that Jesus was crucified exactly on 31 AD. This is exactly as the fulfillment of the prophecy said it would be. Notice it continues on, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And the midst of the week he shall caused the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And this is what we just looked at. And as we see that Jesus carried the cross to Calvary, he wasn't just doing it as though he was forced by human hand, but he knew exactly beforehand that this is where he would be going at that time. You see, God gave us these prophecies to know that we can trust the Bible, to know that we know that Jesus is truly the Messiah, and this is what we see clearly from this. As Jesus was sacrificed, we see that he truly caused the sacrifice or the sacrificial system to cease. We remember that when he was crucified, the temple veil was ripped from top to bottom. In other words, there was no more sacrifice that needed to be taken place by human hands because Jesus was the sacrifice. But as we continue on, we realize that the prophecy didn't end there. The 70 week prophecy of Jesus as the Messiah shows us that this would start in 457. But then 483 years later, in A.D. 27, Jesus would be anointed and baptized. Three and a half years later, that Jesus would come, and now Jesus would die on the cross in 31 A.D. And at the very end of the week, notice what it says will happen. What do you think would take place? If 70 weeks were determined for the Jews, do you think attention would turn from the Jews to others at the end of the 70 weeks? Well, this is exactly what takes place. Notice that the end of the next portion in 34 AD is when the gospel is going to the Gentiles. Now you say, well, the gospel was meant for everyone, right? It wasn't just meant for the Jews. But you realize that primarily during the early part of their ministry that the, that the disciples of Jesus were spending time with the Jews. Now you say, how do you know that? Well, Acts chapter 2, who were they talking to on the day of Pentecost? Pentecost wasn't a Gentile thing, it was a Jewish thing, right? Day of Pentecost, they're preaching to them, 3,000 people are baptized. The next two chapters of Acts, you realize that they're walking by the temple, talking to the Jewish people, and 5,000 people are added to the church. And it's not until you get to Acts chapter 7 that you realize there is a drastic shift from the gospel just being mainly focused to the Jews to now being shared widely to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 7 is where it shows us that The Jews finally rejected the gospel, and we see that they finally killed Stephen when Stephen gave the most powerful sermon about the Messiah. Now, notice what happens. That as this transition takes place, the gospel now goes to the rest of the world, not just specifically to Jerusalem. Notice what these verses say in Acts chapter 13, verse 45. But when the Jews saw the multitudes... They were filled with envy. Now, we have to add that this multitude are the Gentile multitudes. When they're filled with envy, as they see these multitudes of people, and contradicting and blaspheming, they oppose the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you what? First, why is it necessary? Could it be because that's how long God had given them? Seventy prophetic weeks, four hundred and ninety years? But then he continues on, and he said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you, re- you did what? You rejected it and judged yourself unworthy of everlasting life. Behold, we turn to the who? The Gentiles. And this is where you hear Paul talking in Romans chapter 10 and 12 about the gospel now going off to the Gentiles because the Jews had rejected it as a majority. Now, can God still save a Jew today? Absolutely. Everyone who comes to God is able to experience salvation, but the focus had now turned from God's people to extending God's people to the rest of the world. Now, this is what we see in the first part of the vision. Now, we're getting ready to wrap up with what we're studying. You say, how can we cover 1,810 years so quickly? Well, there's not as much detail given about the last part of this vision. We see that God, without unerring accuracy, has so clearly told us the things that would happen. 4.57, 457, AD 27, AD 31, AD 34, and at the end of AD 34, we realize that that 70-year or that 70-week period, 490-year period, has now finished. And the question is, what happens with the rest of the time? Well, we realize that this prophecy didn't happen in a vacuum, right? What was the 490 years cut off from? What was the larger prophecy that it was dealing with? Well, it's very clear that it was the 2300-day prophecy that Daniel was told in Daniel chapter 8. So as we see, what would be, what would happen at the end of the 2300 years? What did the Bible tell us? That the sanctuary would be cleansed, right? Or that the judgment of God would begin. So if you take 457, I would encourage you to pull out your calculators. It's kind of fun to see how accurate it is. And when you take 457 A.D., and you come and you add 2,300 years to it, what date do you get? 1844. Well, if you do it on your calculator, you're going to come up with 1843 because it counts it as a zero year, but there's no zero year. If you have a question about that, we'll discuss it later. But your calculator is just doing it num- numerically, and it doesn't understand that there's no year zero, right? BC1 to AD1, not year zero. So when we realize that this takes place, the 2,300 years... Jesus tells us that that is when the judgment of God would begin in heaven. Now you say, what does that really mean? Why is that significant for us today? Well, what's interesting is that God told Daniel that the judgment would take place at which part of time in earth's history? The beginning of earth's history or the end of earth's history? The end of earth's history. And here we are realizing for that the last 150 plus years we have been living in the time where god is performing the judgment in heaven against his uh, uh, showing to the world who his people are and who are not his people and as we see that the judgment is taking place the question is how is it that this should affect us today well revelation chapter 14 verse 7 says that when the judgment takes place that we are to do what fear god And give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come. Now, I know we've discussed a lot of numbers and a lot of dates, but I want there to be one thing that impresses your mind as you leave this place. Two things, actually. One is that the Bible is specific. People wonder, can we trust the Bible? And after you read Daniel chapter 8 and 9, how many of you can say, without a doubt, I know that the Bible is true? Can a man predict 2,300 years of prophecy? can we even tell you what's happening tomorrow? I can't even tell you what I ate for breakfast yesterday, let alone telling you what I'm doing 2,300 years from now. But we see that God is doing it so clearly, and if God allowed these events to happen so specifically and exactly as He planned, do you think the judgment is happening just as God planned? 1844, God tells us that His work of judging His people would start, that the books would be open, and that it's time for His people living in the last days of this earth's history to understand that they need to turn from evil, right? Fear God, that's what we saw that it was. To give him glory, to worship the God of the Creator because there's a time where Jesus is coming to where he's going to bring up our name. And the question is, when he brings up our name, what's going to happen? Now, this isn't something that we're sharing to just terrify someone, right? The judgment isn't supposed to be bad news. If we know that our life is hidden with Jesus, we know that we have nothing to fear in the judgment. But the question is, if we're not walking right with God, that's why God tells us, now is the time for you to turn from evil, for you to surrender your heart to me, to worship me as the creator, to beware of these deceptions that are taking place, and to know that the time is at hand. You know, God, as he tells these things, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, you really get a picture of the heart of God. And notice what God says. He says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not what? sin. You see, sin is the very thing that killed our Savior. It's the very thing that separates us from God. And God says, that there's one thing I don't want you to do, and that's sin. But if you do sin, notice how it continues. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate, in other words, a lawyer, with the Father, and his name is Jesus Christ, the righteous. You see, I don't want anyone going home here thinking, man, I don't think I'm right with God, I can never do it, and I'm just going to forget about this and go out to the world. But I also don't want us to think, oh, well, you know, everything's fine and dandy. We don't, we don't have to worry about this. We're just living in normal times. The Bible tells us we're not living in normal times. We're living in a time where people are under judgment and review. And the question is, is when God looks at our name, is he going to see the faith of Jesus? Is he going to see the cleansing blood of Jesus? Or is he going to see the filthiness because I've choose to walk a life separate from him? You see, God tells us through prophecy that there's such an important time coming. That the important time is now. And it's time for us to surrender our lives fully to Him. Notice Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 in closing. It says, Therefore, He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through who? Through Him. Since He always lives to do what? Make intercession for them. You know, God has one joy in His life. And it's to make intercession for you and I. Jesus longs to plead on our behalf. Not only to plead for our forgiveness, but to plead for strength in our behalf to be able to overcome those things that are chopping out our spiritual life. And God is saying, if you would just come to me, I am willing to give you the strength that you need. You know, the Bible gives us a warning that we're living in the time of this earth's judgment and it's time for us to make sure that our lives are right with God not by what we can do, right? Where all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. But by surrendering our lives to Jesus Christ once again. You know, it reminds me of a story as I, as I hear this message about a man by the name of Derek Redman. Now, Derek Redmond was in 1992, he was running the Olympics. And as he was getting ready to run the Olympics, all eyes were on him because he was in the semifinals, and everyone thought that he was going to be taking the goal. Now, Derek was from Great Britain, and he was there. He had prepared long, and he had worked hard, and he's there to run the race. And as the race starts, he gets around the first lap. And as he's rounding the corner, all of a sudden, everyone watches him fall to the ground. They thought, what in the world? The first runner is falling to the ground, and as he's laying there, he sees everyone pass by, and the medics come over, and they realize that his hamstring has popped. And here the man running the race, wanting to finish strong as they're laying on the ground. The medics go to help him up, and Derek pushes them away, and he says, I'm going to finish the race. Now the audience is looking on, and now they're not so worried about who's going to win the first, but they're worried about, is this man actually going to finish the race? Is he crazy? And he stands up and he starts to limp towards the finish line. Even though he had been torn and he had been broken, he wonders if it's possible to finish. But then all of a sudden, there's a man who jumps out of the stands. And this man is wearing a t-shirt that says, Have you hugged your kid today? And as the man goes up to Derek, he puts his arm around Derek and says, We're going to finish this. And Derek looks up and he sees the face of his father. Derek and his father stagger over to the finish line, finishing the race, even though there was no way that Derek could do it on his own. You know, as I remember this illustration, it helps me realize the times in which we live in. We know in earth's history that we're rounding the final corner to where Jesus is coming soon, where the end of this world is about to wrap up, and there is no way that we can complete it on our own. We, like Derek, are laying there on the tarmac with broken messed up lives and we have no ability to carry ourselves over but then we see the father coming down and he says that he's willing to save to the uttermost all that come to God through him and the father puts his arm around us and carries us across that line and allows us to accomplish what we can never do on our own but the question that we have to ask is are we willing to allow the father to work in our lives Are we willing to allow the Father to fill us with His grace so that we can experience His power to finish the race that we've set for? I believe that God has a great plan for each one of us. That God has a desire to see each one of us in His kingdom. And the question, are we willing to surrender to His will? I don't know about you, but this evening, once again, I want to say, Lord, by Your grace, I want you to pick me up off of the tarmac of sin. After I'm broken by the things of this world, and Lord, by Your grace, I'm going to trust in your ability to get me across. It's not in my ability. It's not in my good works. But it's because of what you can do in and through my life that I can have assurance in this judgment. Is that your desire this evening? Why don't we bow our heads as we pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, we've looked at a long and drawn out prophecy. But Father, what we can say at the end of it is that your Bible is true. That Father, you're so specific they give us such clarity in life that we know we can have assurance that we can trust you. Lord, if you, can be, if you can be accurate about 2,300 years of history, I believe that you can guide each one of our lives. That, Lord, if you can bring all of these things to pass, you can finish the good work that you've started in us. Father, you see our lives. We're broken. We're messed up. We're in need of a Savior. And, Father, we're so thankful that Jesus Christ is our Savior that you do want to have a people who are ready to stand in the last days. And Lord, we can't stand on our own, but we believe through the power of Jesus Christ that we can stand in your mind. In his name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org